Welcome to the Color Authority podcast. This is Judith podcasting out of Milan, Italy. Today, I'm going to be talking to Erica Kelter. She's a color, material, and finish design specialist, continuing to foster her lifelong passion for creating multi-sensory experiences through material, color, light, and texture, understanding the human-sensory emotional relations to objects and artifacts. Erica has over 15 years of experience working for brands like Nokia, Xbox, and Microsoft Surface, where she's keen on building quality, comfort, accessibility, and sustainability through neuroaesthetics and materiality. Good morning, Erica, and welcome to the Color Authority. You're calling in from Seattle. How are you today? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I have had the podcast now for, I think, two years. I know I know you're also a listener. We just talked about it a little bit in, in the introduction that we just had. And I've been asking that same question to everybody. And I'd love to hear your answer to that very first question as a, as a warm-up to our conversation. What is color to you, Erica? Well, of course, I had heard that you always have the same same question. So I've thought about it. And at first I was thinking like, okay, color is perception or emotion. But really what I I think now is that color for me is communication. It is almost like a, a language of its own because color can be super informative or it can be almost poetic in like aesthetic um, point of view. For me also, just personally, color is just such a versatile thing from like being from Finland to be to moving to Seattle, having worked in a lot of places, a lot in Asia, for example, how the same color in different light in different continents, it just kind of changes completely. So yeah, I think that color is a language of its own and it's all about the communication but it also has to do with where you are in place in time and even in like how old you are how you perceive the color yeah for me it is really a language I love languages and I speak many languages on my own but I also language do you speak ah I do speak Finnish that's my first language English my father is Swedish, so I speak Swedish as well. A little bit of like German, a little bit of French, a little bit of Spanish, just kind of as Europeans tend to know a couple of languages. So, yeah, that is true. And then now you obviously you also speak the language of color. Definitely. That's my I don't know. Maybe that's my first language. Then. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the other day, somebody asked me, so. Um, so I, I speak six languages and somebody asked like, so in what language do you actually dream? And I'm like, that's actually none of those six. I probably dream in color. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so you are, we, I mean, we both work in color. Uh, obviously most people, actually not everybody on the podcast directly works with color, but you definitely work with color directly. You are a CMF, well, you're actually a CMF design specialist. Can you explain what your definition of CMF is, because there's been some talking of CMF on the podcast, but I think CMF has taken on a, a new journey over the last couple of years. Uh, definitely. And and during my career of 15 years, 
it has definitely changed my view on what CMF should be or could be or what's the, the versatility of CMF. I actually don't have, um, like I didn't study industrial design. I studied to become an artist. I was doing textile arts and some ceramics. And then by by surprise, my my neighbor asked me if I would be interested in uh, trying a career on Nokia mobile phones. And I ended up in the industry. So I entered the whole CMF uh, design not knowing at all what it is. So just very enthusiastic and very passionate about learning more. For me, CMF is obviously colors, materials, finishes. It is like specifying those four those three things in in specifications for production but i am also advocate for sensory user experience as a whole i think that the colors materials and finishes cannot be addressed without understanding also for example uh, sound so all materials have sound metallic uh, surfaces sound very different from like leather surfaces or plastic and finishes, they change that sound. So that all the acoustics of material, but it also goes to, I mean, how different light conditions affect or impact uh, the look of color, uh, the look of different finishes. So I think it's a, a very kind of overall understanding how your brain works on looking at things or feeling things or hearing things or even smelling things. We don't necessarily always consider the smell, but it is almost the absence of smell that is important for, you know, devices or packaging. But at the moment, I think it's also that's going to be one of the, the areas that will maybe also change because some of the bio-based materials, they have a distinctive uh, smell to it. So if you have like pa packaging that is maybe wooden packaging and you open it up and you get this kind of like puff of smell of wood, it can be really nice experience. Or if it's kind of out of place, then it might not be that nice experience. So it's very, I think CMF, all in all, is just very versatile experience of everything sensory. Indeed, I think, uh, and that was actually what, what I was going to ask you, you know, what is sensory user experience? But you just explained that very well. One of the first informations that arrive to our brain is smell, of course. That's yeah. Information, but obviously if you buy something online, it's not there. You have to wait until it comes in, in, in your home. But it's interesting how you said the absence of smell, how that mm -hmm. also influences a purchase or what relationship you have with uh, with a certain object. Yeah, and I think this whole area, I I have been working a little bit with some neuroscientists that are really interested in this area, and you know, smells are are used used in um, space design more, like mm -hmm. using in a you know fresh bakery kind of like odors or or just fresh flour or you know fresh laundry <laughs> so but i think that this is going to be something that that might be coming more to usually you know these kinds of trends they enter the consumer electronics through automotive i you know automotive is already kind of on this you know the 
you know new car smell so <laughs> that's a thing <laughs> so, so yeah the leather and the textiles indeed yeah yeah which yeah. also people don't know that leather doesn't smell like that it's actually yeah, the, I know <laughs> the wax which for me was a total killer and obviously I mean I worked in coloring leather as well so I know what the wet end smells like trust mm-hmm. me you don't want that in your car <laughs> Yeah, I I know. I have like I have a textile background, and I work with raw leather. It's not really nice <laughs> smell at all. No, but that's hence them obviously working those leathers so that you have that new car uh, experience. Indeed, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I think sound is also very interesting. I mean, there's I mean, there's a lot of people that are surprised, and I'm, I bet you have that too. And you say what you do, they're like there's a person doing color at a company. And then I'm like, yeah, that actually is quite a, a big thing lately. There's people that do sound, you know, there's yes. car companies that close the car door until it makes the right sound. Um, vacuum cleaners, the same thing. Sound is something also that I think is, is become uh, next to smell. I think that is something that also is obviously because of all these senses I think that's mm-hmm. gonna be big as well. Do you do you do you, are you working on something like that, or have you worked on something that really connects within your field, the sound and the smell? Yes, and definitely the digital sounds as well, because many of the sounds that we are using in consumer electronics and automotive as well, especially now with electric vehicles, they are digital sounds, but they are added to make them make the user experience feel more natural. So for example, electric cars, they are very, you know, they're too silent to be safe. So the car sound is actually digitally generated. And for example, Rivian has been working on like using natural sounds, like sounds of birds or water as an inspiration for how they create the sounds on their cars. And I've been doing the similar kind of thing. So just being involved in, you know, sound design for all kinds of experiences. So I was working for Surface Audio devices and they're def- definitely, you know, the whole experience and how how different indications of what's happening, what you're touching, how it's, what is happening when you, when you're using the inter- different interfaces. Uh, sound is a very, very important part of that information flow, but it also needs to feel natural, not just having, we have so many beeps and, you know, alert sounds around us. So I, I think that moving into something more natural, and that's also, it's kind of intertwining even more with haptics as well. So you get a haptic feedback with the sound and with the visual. So it's all kind of like weaving together in a very, very interesting way. And I think that those are going to be some of the areas that are going to be the the future of sensory UX and, and the future of CMF as well. Yeah. How What role does color play in UX? Like, how do you, for example, when you're working on these projects, what you just explained, you know, you're working on the haptics of a material, the possible sound, even the smell of the raw material, obviously, that is inherent. I mean, I'm one of those persons that smells things as soon as she gets it. <laughs> Tell them, but it's but what role does color then play into all of that sensory experience that you are creating as a designer? Yes, that's a very good question. There's a lot of like to do with the color and the usability in, of interfaces on digital, 
Um, however, my realm is the the hardware and the kind of physical. And there, I have been very, very interested in in learning more about the accessibility of color, how use of color can enhance the experience of using devices, how it can guide you. But not only that, you know, obviously, if you have a red button, you know that it's for something really important. And that's just a heritage kind of a thing. It doesn't even necessarily have to do with the the actual accessibility of the color red, because, you know, red is not very, uh, it's a heritage color of like us being aware that something needs to be seen. Although for, for example, vision impaired people, red is not necessarily the best best, you know, contrast color to be highlighting something. So it's not really an accessibility color. It is perceived accessibility or, you know, perceived function of things. But I I, I think this is one like very obvious area that, you know, we know certain information. We know what green means uh, on a button or we know what red means. But for me, it's also really important for people to understand what they are interacting with. Let's say I work with headphones, for example. So just to use different hues of uh, same color, even whether it's gray or whether it's red, um, just to give your eye a place to go and a little bit of like understanding of like, okay, these are the in the places that you you're supposed to touch and this is where you feel comfortable putting your hand or this is this soft material this is the cushion that goes against your skin mm-hmm. and if it doesn't look like it is comfortable then you feel awkward using it and of course it doesn't only be about it's not only about color it is also about finish and 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 all the the other kind of like material choice itself and and such like but color can really calm you down or give you give you just a sense of like humanness or more technology or um this is where the interfaces are and especially with some kind of a new hardware that people are not used to it's really really important that you give them those cues that gives them confidence to to interact with different devices. So it's almost like color and functionality and user friendliness as well. I mean, because, you know, if, if you are having this new device and you're not quite sure, I mean, I don't read instruction manuals. I have to be very mm-hmm. honest. I'm one of those who does starts with the buttons and then just see what happens. But that's exactly so. That's also how you create a greater accessibility through. Of course, the haptics and the materials, but also color. You lead people towards the use of that particular device. Yes, definitely. And I think that color is not only about the information. And information doesn't only come through those things that you point out something. But color also, it needs to be purposeful. You need to, you're very aware that, okay, if you put something that is bright white against your skin, there might be some challenges. It might get dirty. And if the the surfaces don't look comfortable to do that, then you might feel awkward or you might not feel at ease of, of like using a, a device, a wearable device, for example. 
But also color needs to be delightful and captivating. It needs to be something that gives you joy. And I think that that is just as much about the usability of being happy to use devices. We use so many devices every day. We spend so much time with our earphones or microphones or laptops or phones Amazing. that if there's not if if every time you pick something up and it annoys you it's a lot of annoyance but if every time you pick it up and it delights you it's a really nice feeling and you it also is about the longevity and sustainability of of using devices that if you really love them you want to take care of them and you know you use them more and it makes more sense for us to consume those kinds of or or you know use our money to buy things that we that bring us delight and joy and are also a good experience and and enhance our productivity or just our life in general I think one of those key points, indeed, what you just said is, you know, to what what you said um, also in your in your bio, your goal is to create something that's a delightful user experience. But you also just mentioned other topics that are very important, which is yes, user friendliness, wanting to use it without being scared that you're going to break it or make it dirty, the comfort, but also the the longevity. The longevity mm-hmm. is, is key, especially when there when you look at the pricing, of course, especially of, of some devices. When you look at colors and longevity, how do you feel we should be picking colors? Um, you know, thinking about longevity, what what does longevity on a on such a device? What does that mean to you in in color wise? I do believe that it is the same thing that if you love something go towards that. Don't be afraid of color and don't be thinking that you should just blend in because of longevity. And there's also a lot of like modular design and design ethos coming up that I think that the personalization over the lifespan of your devices might become more of a norm that you can maybe change apart or you can use a skin to kind of revamp your device and you know kids do this a lot or teenagers they put stickers on everything and it's not that they are you can look at something and you you're like okay it's ruined because it has stickers on it and in a way it is but it's also personalized and loved so you have to appreciate that as well so I think that's a really really good question and really good thing to think of like how can we make people appreciate and personalize their devices more in a way that it still kind of serves the design um are there tools that we can we can give them and also cuz repairability is becoming much more important and that will lead us to build devices in a way that actually some of the parts could be replaced so if you're replacing that part, maybe you can replace it to a different color or, you know, similar kinds of things, modularity, personalization, customization on, on some level. I think indeed, because a lot of people, when they think about longevity colors, they think about neutrals, they think about gray, mm-hmm. about white and black, obviously. Perhaps they think about the primary colors because they seem to always come and go, whether uh, we're in the Bauhaus movement or not. 
But it's interesting that indeed when you buy something that you love in the color that you love, you're less mm-hmm. likely to get rid of it. You're more likely yes. to keep it because you're you're loving it literally. When you create your vision, when you so you're asked like Erica, we are gonna design a new device. This has come out of I don't know market research focus groups. What what is your product vision and where? Where does color come in? Do you already immediately have a feel for color or does color come a little bit later in your in your design and, and visioning phase? Well, during my career, I have really specialized in looking into uh, product lifecycle and portfolio, product portfolio level of, of um, strategic design of color and material and finish. So... I usually work on the very beginning of a product uh, where I don't only look into the core color of the core product, but also over the lifespan. Or if there's, uh, for example, I was working years at Xbox and there's a whole uh, category of limited edition and special edition devices. And then you have to, in that very beginning, understand the colorability or different decorations that can go into the materials that you're choosing to use. Also, you need to understand how different finishes work with those different decorative technologies. So for me, color comes in in the very, very beginning. So I start with a couple of like just core colors, maybe black and white, just to understand the manufacturing process in those different colors. Light colors and dark colors, they they are very different in in what comes to the challenges of quality, for example. So you really need to understand that what is the whole range of the lifespan of of that particular part or particular um, device that you're you're working with. So it almost starts with with the color, very material led design, and then you have to address everything that comes along the way, like from tooling finishes. You have to understand how those change over the the course of like you know the the lifetime how how often do the the tools need to be refurbished you just have to understand the whole cycles of that part even on a part level so it it does you know everything starts with with the color and finish i'd say and also but you also the the way it sounds when you're now talking about your your process is that you need to know the limitations early because if a certain color is going to give a limitation you need to change it and you need to change it quick and you need to understand whether it's going to go, look good on glass for example and i think we all know that with the glass finish not all colors look great yes and definitely this is sometimes i've gone to the business and i've said to them in very early stage that okay we need to make up our minds if we want to do, you know, black this, you know, device in black and or white, or if we want to, because it might be that the same tooling doesn't work or the same finish doesn't work for both colors. It's almost every time that I get this kind of like blank look of like, why, why do we need to know it now? <laughs> and then you have to educate and especially with sustainability and for example, reducing some of the, the processes, like not using paint, for example. It, it It's it's very in the beginning stages that you define the things that define also the quality over the the manufacturing and also the lifespan of the, the device or the part. So you really need to understand where you want to 
go? What is the direction? What is the marketing plan? What is the portfolio that you're you're using to or where this device, you know, this particular device is is going? And you just have to sometimes you just have to make a commitment on color on a very early on phase. And color, especially for let's say then electronic devices, was not always a big thing. I mean, mm-hmm. we're both born and raised in Europe. So my first cell phone obviously was a Nokia. And I think that was for the majority of the Europeans, you know, when I was 18, that was my first cell phone. And you worked at, at Nokia, of course, in, in Finland. It was a company that made a huge turnaround when they inserted color in the, in mm-hmm. the at certain points. Um, I mean, you've worked there, you even won awards. Can you tell a little bit about, you know, Nokia as a brand? Because I think that still isn't it that that was amazing what they did and they still i think still they made the best phones because literally <laughs> I still have them i have them they never broke down they never did they never cracked yes. I have two of them so i know i mean i don't use them anymore but it's amazing and how you look at the function of but also then how they entered in this color era can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about those changes yeah i i think it it started out about like just giving people choice it was this idea of like you have to you you want to um give people what they love you want to make that connection of like okay this this is a device that you touch all the time so you need to have that connection and that love and how do you build the love and it was a lot of it started with just personalization so you could buy a new cover and buy a new color and even that it was kind of like gimmicky but it was also very fun it was very fun way and i think that the fun aspect of it was that what made it really successful it was the first kind of like you know very high-tech device but it's for everyone and it's fun and you can personalize it and it's not just like something that you know don't touch or be careful and I think that also the the perception of quality and that you can confidently have your mobile phone with you and even if it drops it doesn't break I think that that was just kind of like changing in people's mind what high technology was and who you can give it to you know, uh, when I was little, I wasn't, you know, allowed to touch our stereos or, you know, anything my dad perceived as valuable. So it was really for me the first piece of technology that I touched and it was mine. It was like for me to use. So very like a personal connection there. And I think that was definitely what what Nokia tapped into. But really, the the color and the material became so important through also this perception of quality, or not just perception, but actual quality. Because what Nokia did was make the most of the materials that they were working on and really perfecting, for example, how, especially on the plastics, they made plastic products that were really premium. And they were really the first ones to do that from just like how you manufacture things and how you put them together but also how they how the quality was like after 5 years after 10 years of using and even and one of the the really important things was that 
we wanted to make sure that even if your device, if it fell on the floor, it even if it cracked, you couldn't see the crack. So all the plastic, for example, were were throughout the plastic. It was it was dyed, so the color went all the way through the material. It wasn't just a layer of paint on top of the the plastic, but it was all the way through, and the the manufacturing quality was also perfected, really. Yeah, but it it this speaks to the fact that I still have them and I can distance myself from them. I haven't still, so they're still here. So they, I, I agree on the fun part, and I think color is very much part of that. Color mm-hmm. is very much part of yes, being a little bit more daring, you know, in producing such devices. But it's also about the fun part. Now, then, obviously, you move to Microsoft, and mm-hmm. at Microsoft. There was, again, I would imagine a completely different strategy when it comes to color and experience strategy, wasn't it? Yes, it was a drastic change because at Nokia, we had a portfolio CMF strategy and it was very strong and it was like everything was connected to everything. Whereas where I started at Microsoft and especially on Microsoft Surface side of things, it was really the ethos was like best for the product. So if one color looked good on one product, then that was the kind of the way to go. So there wasn't this kind of like a, a, a template that would be used throughout the portfolio. And it was very different way of thinking things, but I wouldn't say that one or the other is better. It was just very different way of thinking how to apply design altogether. But what really changed my way of working when going to Microsoft was that suddenly I had all these amazing people around me, which was also at Nokia, there was amazing people, but there was suddenly all these human factor scientists that were, that I could learn about like how you know, human brain works, how it reacts to different, you know, finish feels or different color. And there was this model shop in the same building that I I worked in and they were able to prototype everything in a second. And it was just amazing resource. And also the fact that everything was very data-driven and very science-driven. So not only the things that I knew that work for design and CMF, I wasn't just using them, but I was also learning the science and the data behind it and really to make a case out of like, okay, this is what we should do because this is how how it affects, you know, how how people perceive things and how, this is how people feel when they touch this surface. And that was really amazing and eye-opening and a different way of like approaching uh, CMF. And that really got me into thinking CMF as a sensory user experience. So you had even more information available to think about before you would actually start your design process. Interesting information, um, especially when it comes to to obviously uh, our, our brains. But what is the most important lesson that you learned when it came to color or CMF in that feels? Like what was a moment that we were like, okay, this changed. This was the tipping point. And there were so many moments and there still are. <laughs> One of the really interesting moments was that 
There was a lot of effort on accessibility and inclusivity. And for example, the Xbox adaptive controller was just coming out when I when I joined Microsoft and Xbox. I wasn't part of that project, but I learned a lot of like just watching what was happening there. And one of the things was this kind of like accessibility and inclusive design. Really, there's a lot of devices out there. There's a lot of like keyboards or mice or or different kinds of skins or stickers. But actually, the colors that were used on those were, didn't make any sense because I tried to deep dive into like, I want to understand accessibility in color. And what I learned that color was really implemented on a lot of things like dyslexia keyboards, for example. They were, it was just differentiating, like, for example, different, different function keys and different functions, but the color itself wasn't accessible. So it didn't have, like, if you have any kind of like difficulty in seeing different colors, for example, you're, you know, colorblind on various, you can be colorblind in various different ways. The contrast of those different uh, key colors weren't enough that you would actually see the contrast. So there was a very little of like color understanding in that space. And that really amazed me. And that was really where I got really, I, I got really enthusiastic and passionate about like, we need to change this. And we started to work towards like understanding more. But it was also a very big learning curve in there is really not one thing that would serve everybody because especially accessibility is such a diverse thing. So it needs to be thinking of so many different needs because accessibility is not only like vision impaired or hearing impaired. It's also about learning difficulties or it can be about mental health or neurodiversity. So different people need different kinds of solutions. So it's really the same way that Xbox adaptive controller, it's called adaptive because it needs to adapt to different needs. So that was really on the core and understanding how could color be used in a way that it would also adapt to different needs. So that was really, for me, maybe the learning and the big, big tipping point there was that I understood that there is no one right thing to do. <laughs> so you need to just understand the versatility of needs and versatility of people. And also, I think that comes back to the, the emotion of color, that everybody has their own favorite color. And there's not like, there's no answer of like, what is the favorite color of the world? <laughs> It's a stupid question even. So easy, right? It would be too easy that we all have that same <laughs> color is so complex. Not because of only its access, its adaptability, its function. It is also because it taps into our emotions, which is at a whole different complexity of, of color. Yes, definitely. And I think this is one of the trends that is now rising, that we are understanding more the neurodiversity of people, not just those who have, you know, some accessibility need from like be having ADHD or learning difficulties or dys dyslexia or, you know, being on a spectrum, but also the neurodiversity 
of of people like in general just like there are and that comes to again like there's no one design that can be perfect so the personalization and be to be able to kind of like change the way that you use your interfaces or your devices like even being designing for audio space people wear their earphones or headphones in such different ways like earphones somebody only uses one somebody uses two somebody only in their left ear someone in their right ear somebody wants to take one in their hand and fiddle with it and if it has like controls in in the ear earbud then that's going to be problem if you want to fiddle with it and same with the headphones people wear them in the weirdest ways um i've also worked on gaming controllers same thing you you perceive like you first thing that okay everybody's going to grab the controller in a way that it, it should be in a way it should be con- uh, grabbed but people hold and use their controllers in a variety of ways it is amazing how creative people get when they are using using something like that you know but even at the dinner table how people hold their their spoon or their fork and their knife definitely just even when we look at cultural context chopsticks i mean it's it's completely different i mean there is there's no not one way and that's because we're human i think that's the very reason why that happens of course and you just tapped on it to a very interesting topic that i've been studying and talking about and it's so mind-blowing i think and it's huge which is neuroaesthetics right so it is <laughs> literally that that is what we're talking about. What is it that you, Erica, like? What taps into your personal feelings? What is that color, sound, music that really is is would make a product or a space perfect for you? It's it's fascinating. Can you talk us a little bit through through that topic and what what you think is next within that world? Yes. Once I got interested in the sensory UX or kind of like the broader thinking of CMF, that really led me into understanding better the neuroaesthetics. So I believe that neuroaesthetics first started on the architecture. So it was, it started as an understanding of the science of how people feel in a space, whether it's a man-made space or a natural space, but how just, you know, how your brain responds and how your feeling responds to a space. But really, I do believe that the same thinking and same understanding applies when it is about anything. If it's a chair, if it's about headphones, if it's about, you know, car, car is a a, a small space. So um, again, everything in that space, again, circling back to sensory user experience, everything, all the sounds or the smells, everything that you touch how you feel when you sit on a chair, how you feel when you put on your headphones, how it feels against your skin, how it feels after wearing one hour. It all has to do with this neuroaesthetics, not just comfort, but just the kind of like how you, how your body responds and how your brain responds to all that is happening around you. And this is really something that I would love people to understand more and also put some more thought into because it, it is about well-being. It's definitely about like, how do we make sure that people feel good with everything happening around them? 
I think there's two big bigger examples of what uh, what they did in neuroaesthetics, and that's obviously Google with the space mm-hmm. and IKEA with the heart scanner. I think those are some of those examples that over the past couple of years we've seen. But obviously with neuroaesthetics, I think it's beautiful that there are companies that have found a way with scientists to under to make us understand when we are comfortable and where we're not. Sometimes we do know, but honestly speaking, people have lost a little bit touch with what they what they feel, I think over the last couple of decades probably already. But it's there's a fine line then, of course, with privacy, with data and data collection. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what is currently not bringing forward what neuroesthetics could be when you talk to well-being and health. And you think is that when this is really going to happen is, I think, a different different topic. I think nobody really knows. But do you think that we, we can get it right and that we can actually use it just for health and well-being? So exactly what it was intended for? Uh, I think there will be many, many steps towards that. So when people talk about new technology or, you know, for example, now what's happening with AI, they always imagine this kind of like far future. Whereas I I think that we need to also think of the steps that we need to take from now, what is existing now towards that kind of future that we want to build. And those steps are super, super important because they might take 20 years sometimes. I think that one good thing that can be happening now already and is, is already happening is that all these different sensory input and output channels can be built together much better with the use of of AI. So how your visual cues and your audio cues and then your haptic cues, for example, how those work together on a device so that there is like this kind of a rhythm or a language or some kind of a different levels, how it works in harmony together. You know, at the moment it can feel like, okay, there's a bling coming here and there's a buzz coming to my, you know, my body from my my smartwatch. And there's like something's happening all the time, but it, it doesn't have a rhythm or it doesn't have a sync. I think that this is something that can be really enabled by AI so that a, with the use of AI or you know, assistance with AI, we can build more coherent experiences so that everything that is happening and that is kind of supposedly guiding you in your everyday life, whether it's like navigation or it's just using of your PowerPoint or or anything, it can be more harmonious and, and that can really be like enhancing the well-being. So I'm not that much talking about like well-being apps or measuring your heart rate or anything like that, but just kind of like making the experiences, those sensory experiences that we surround people with, with all devices that they are using, making those more human and making those more pleasurable and delightful and working in in this cohesiveness and harmony together instead of like, just creating all this uh, noise, not just audio noise, but all this like visual noise and audio noise, noise and haptic noise around us. Yeah, no, I think that is indeed something that I think in the current world, I'm not sure if it's COVID or maybe it's just me coming of age. I think sounds and so many things that are thrown at you and at your senses 
I actually do think it's largely COVID or maybe COVID made us realize how tired we can get from our surroundings, especially when you're traveling, for example, or you are in, in restaurants that literally have not thought about the acoustics, for example, or the color and how the light is influencing, for example, what you're eating and how you're feeling. This, I think this is a topic that will be bigger in the next couple of years, for sure. Yes. And, and so many things kind of pivoted during COVID. It wasn't like, it, I don't think that things changed. I think that it was just kind of like finding these edges of things, like what can we tolerate? How much screen time can we tolerate? And then we had enough and now we want something else. It was also really interesting how the whole audio culture changed. And I, this is also why I think that audio and haptics will be really, really important in the next upcoming two to five years, is that our culture really changed. We didn't used to always listen to podcasts when we're walking. We didn't used to always listen to, um, you know, something and, and also reading books. People are reading books more because they can listen to them. And that has even changed the way that that books are written. So there are books now written so that they they are written to be narrated, not to be read necessarily. And I think that, that that's really interesting and really inspiring how all this kind of culture that has been super visual, like there, there's been just so much visual culture of like TikToks and Instagram. People are getting tired of those. And some of that is actually moving towards audio. And, and that I think that can be really interesting. It can bring back much more expression from language and use of language. And, and it can also enable totally new kinds of, you know, ways of, of communicating what could be the future audio messages or what could be, what are the devices that we use for audio? Um, so, so I think that that that's been really interesting to to follow how the whole audio culture has bloomed over the the last couple of years. That's true. That was also one of the reasons that in COVID I started the podcast. I was tired of screens, visuals, trend presentations online. I was just like, okay, I, we need to, but I still wanted to do color, and I still wanted to also talk about color, like. Why, why can't we talk about color without seeing it? Um, but sometimes using imagination is actually so strong. So mm -hmm. say when you read a book and then you watch the movie, you're like, that's not how I had imagined the main characters, you know? It is all <laughs> right? I mean, that is about imagination and it is about bringing people along a journey, I think, an experience and a sensory journey, just like what you talked about. Yeah. And I think that this is all like people, some people are saying like, it's not the same thing to listen to book than to read it. And I agree. I 100% agree. It's not the same thing. You use your imagination in a totally different ways. But I, I do believe it's a, it's a richness of like different things happening. It's not just like either or. So I, I, I do believe that it, it is a, uh, it is somehow like super, I, I love it. I I think it's super delightful. Podcasts bring so much joy into my life. Like I hear so many things that I wouldn't have time or I couldn't find online, These all these kind of conversations. And it also makes me more connected to people. And I'm the kind of a person that if I find, you know, if I 
hear a podcast and somebody is talking there who I feel is fascinating, I just reach out to them. I'm like, hey, I want to be your friend. I want to, I want to hear more. <laughs> so so I, I think bought more books because I'm listening to podcasts yes. of people that then have perhaps interviewed somebody that that I love the podcast and then they've written a book and then I buy the book. You know, I still yes. read physical physical books. I, I don't li- I don't tend to listen to them, but it's um it's fascinating how podcasts have actually you know, going through the roof through, through COVID because we have, we are looking more into that and that sense, you know, th- that sensory experience. Mm-hmm. And it's also language in, in a way, I, f- I feel that this uh, just, this just makes my, my brain buzz because I love language and I, you know, living in U.S., why I started to listen to audiobooks was really that I don't have access or I was always like hauling, a, you know, backs and backs of books back from Finland because I love reading in my, you know, my mother tongue. But then, you know, during COVID, I wasn't going back to Finland that much. And then it just got like cumbersome of like, okay, you know, it it, it wasn't making any sense. So I, I started to read on you know online books and then then also listen to audiobooks but also what i find is really beautiful when you know a couple of languages is that you can read or you can listen to a book and then you can go and you can if you feel like okay i'm not sure how how the author has actually kind of like how they've thought of like what is the original language of this and then you can go back and you can actually see what is the original one. So you don't have to just kind of like go with translation. You can also go back and and find the the you know the different dimension of um, of another language on on that same sentence. I I think and I've always said that and people are like well that's easier for you to say you're Dutch I said yes I know but not all Dutch people speak six six languages I think the richness <laughs> of speaking languages. Also, when you do color, when you do trends, like in my case, but I think generally it broadens your view of everything mm-hmm. in the world and especially the senses and how you name them. And also how how, la- how some languages just have culturally different ways of, of using certain senses, such as food, color, design. It, it is a widening view, I think, that everybody should take on indeed. Yes, definitely. Erica, it has been wonderful to talk to you, but thank you so much for sharing all your your deep experience in, in user experiences and accessibility to, to color. Oh, I did. This was really invigorating and a, a really great start for my week. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this last episode. If you are a fan of the Color Authority podcast, please let us know by reviewing and rating our show on whichever platform you're listening on. The next episode is coming out next month. And in the meantime, I'm wishing you a wonderful, colorful day.